Welcome to the Recruiter Startup Podcast. My name's Dulta Doherty, and in this podcast series, I will be speaking to investors, advisors, entrepreneurs, and recruiters who are based all over the world, and we'll be discussing how to set up, scale, and operate a world-class recruitment company. And today, we're going to speak to somebody who's been through the entire journey, and he's in his early 30s which is pretty phenomenal. So his name is Safe Kidway, and he is the co-founder of Digital Gurus, and he's based out in Dubai. So we had a great chat. He was uh, in a coffee shop, so the sound is probably not as good as it has been on previous, but it adds a little bit of atmosphere to it. And... Great story. So, some key points in it that I think you really like is they always knew that they were going to sell the business and he managed to find an advisor and we went into the type of things that that advisor, whose name is John O'Sullivan, uh, the type of things that John came in and structured are really interesting and it had a lasting effect on their exit and that relationship has been key to his story so we had a great chat about that and the business and how to scale it and you know some of the issues that he had throughout the years and what they're currently up to and i didn't get to go into all the details that you probably want to hear if you're a recruiter looking to go abroad to Dubai. We'll probably save that for the next time that we catch up or for a time when I get over to Dubai and can live the high life a little bit. But uh, until then, enjoy the chat with Safe and let me know what you think about it. If you like it, please do give it five stars and uh, send it to another recruiter. I think this is a really inspirational story. Fair play to him, and I wish him further success. Not that he needs it. Hiya, safe. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And yourself? I am not bad. Although the weather's not great. Do you know where I wish I was today? <laughs> Where's that? I wish I was sit, sitting next to you in Dubai, sipping a coffee, watching the world go by. <laughs> yeah, it's not too bad, to be honest. I mean, we're in the height of winter and uh, it's 25 degrees today. Um, so, yeah, really rough. <laughs> so, welcome to the Recruiter Startup Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great stuff. I I put the word out to Dubai. I said, who do we need to speak to? And the people spoke. They said, you need to get safe on the podcast. So we delivered what we were asked to, and here you are. Awesome. Amazing. Well, no, it's uh, it's actually my first podcast, so looking forward to seeing um, how it goes. Okay, awesome. Um, Social proofing, it's where it's all at, isn't it? Yes. You know, if uh, if you if people if I ask people who should I speak to in Dubai and they're saying you, then you've done something right. So I think we'll jump into some of that later. But I suppose I want to ask you to start. It looks like you got a good degree, a proper degree, one that uh, one that <laughs> required a bit more study than my sales and marketing degree, and you went into recruitment quite early on. What talk talk to me about those early years in recruitment, and they were just before the recession, right? Yeah, that's right. So, um, I happened to do financial economics at university because I think when you're 18, you don't really know exactly what you want to do. But I just knew I wanted to make money, and natural, you put two and two together, and you think finance sounds like a, a really good uh, route. And um, I did that, and it was cool, but a little bit boring and tedious I think the numbers just got to me and um, 
what actually transpired was in my final year at university, um, one of my, my partner uh, at the time, or she still is actually, um, her best friend was in recruitment and she was a year older and she was already working and um, she came up to me and at one time we went for lunch. She said, oh yeah, I just made £20,000 this month and um, my eyes just lit up and I was like, what, what is this? What is this uh, recruitment uh, mm. stuff? And um, really surprised, like what, 21 years old and earning that sort of money. I was just like, this is crazy. And then she sort of explained a little bit about what she did and uh, business development and, and finding people and it sort of sounded reasonable or okay so um i finished my degree in that summer i just started applying online uh for a couple of just recruitment jobs just on the normal online job boards and i got a call back from a few places um some of the sort of old school classic ones like your badenoch and clark and um uh, s freeze etc and then there was a small there was a small boutique um that got in touch with me um and I went down for an interview there and they were literally on a second floor um, in a really rundown office. Uh, looked really small. There was like maybe 10 people there at the time. Um, I remember the meeting room was right by the toilet and the kitchen was right there as well. And I was like, what is this? And say, was, was it uh, not, uh, would it not have been an option for you to going, going into banking or being a financial trade or something? maybe a little further up the food chain, would that not have been the normal route for somebody with your degree? Yeah, definitely. I think so. I think um, for me, though, what really sort of intrigued me about was re with recruitment was it didn't matter about how much experience you had or how many years you'd been doing something. Uh, the earning potential seemed to almost be instant if you were good at it. Um, uh, and did that did that uh, turn out to be true in your first job? Um, it did actually. Um, it was something that I happened to take to recruitment quite quickly. Uh, and the market and the company I actually joined happened to specialise within digital media. And that was at a point. I think this was two thousand and six. So it was a time where there were not many competitors. Um, it was all still quite new and um, being a bit of a geek myself and into my gadgets and stuff and even when I was um, working part-time at university I worked in like Dixon's so I was selling TVs and cameras and stuff so um, I felt it was just something that I really suited um, and I started off working at a dual desk so contract and perm um, and I was recruiting for any type of discipline within digital media so web designers developers project managers etc and you were probably able to do that back then because the market was so small compared to the complexities of the digital world right now right yeah exactly and um i think even when we made the decision to set up ourselves so i, I worked uh, in that company for 18 months um and i was top but me and my co-founders so the two of us we ended up setting up digital gurus and it was okay so we were the two top billers there and i think within sort of a year of being within the business we realized that you know what there's a there's a real market here and there's something that we can really do um and get our teeth stuck into and mind you we were still relatively young so um i was 22 and when we finally first started the business i was 23 Wow. And this was in 2008. That's fantastic. So before, before I ask you about the, the recession and that, I, I just want to jump in. You got your branding right from day one. How did you... I appreciate you're in the digital world. You're seeing this. Did you, like, did you hire somebody to do that for you? Did you come up with it yourself? Because like, it's a brand that has like, stood the test of time, and a lot don't. Was there, was there a process that you went or did you hire anybody? No, we didn't actually. So it was something that we chose to do ourselves. So the name Digital Gurus, was, we just thought it up. Um, the term guru was being thrown about at that time. Um, and the fact the space that we were going into, we felt that the name was quite powerful and it sort of almost did exactly as it said on the tin. And um, for us, because we were in that digital space, we had lots of contacts, so we were really lucky. So web designers, developers, we knew marketing guys. 
and we knew that we wanted our brand and website and presence to match some of the clients that we actually worked with we wanted them to go onto our website and go you know what their website looks amazing it's as good as something we would do um we should be working with these guys because they must know what they're talking about um and we really wanted to get that credibility from an early stage um so we started up a twitter page facebook um and i remember our first website was built in flash um and it was really interactive um we had like digital writing which was across the the screen and it was something that when you go onto it it was visually striking and it looked nothing like uh, a normal recruitment company and even the tone of language we used um something in the way that we would just speak to friends um and try to make it as personable and as less corporate as we possibly could uh because also the the sector that we were in the guys the, the clients that we work with the t-shirts beards tattoos earrings it doesn't matter um it comes down to the talent yeah i i think that's you were an early adopter at that it's easy to say that now in hindsight and to to look back and say that you just seen that and then that's what you did but the whole marketplace has copied you in the years that have come because back then I can't remember anybody doing that. Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't. I mean, we had, we built our own um, private job boards. We were the first recruitment agency to build an interactive map on our website where we would post our jobs and you could see um, where in London the jobs were. So, because we realized that uh, the choice for candidates was so vast that people were actually able to pick where they'd want to work in which area and if they could see oh there's a job which is in north london you just click on that in the map and it will tell you the job um and you were able to narrow down your search fields into whichever area you wanted to look um and also we were very early adopters of writing blogs and articles and giving uh information back to the industry that we were working in um and i remember within the first i think 18 months of starting the business we partnered up with an events business called Glug London uh, and we agreed a year uh, partnership with them to sponsor co-sponsor uh each event that they did once a month um which was for the digital community and that was great because it blew up from being 50 people um in month 1 to 300 people coming down uh, by the end of the year um and it was a really really good way for us just to keep reinforcing our brand our name um and really networking properly outside of just your normal cold calls and biz dev yeah so from from the outside looking in you're matching you're matching your industry you're giving back to the community and you're positioning yourself well under the hood you're you're using traditional recruitment mechanisms of what you've learned has that changed throughout the years as the the way you do business evolved yeah i think it always has to constantly evolve i mean when we first started up we were completely self funded um so it was all the the savings that we had we put straight back into the business um so we were only able to recruit graduates at that initial stage uh, low salaries and we had to take the risk that we were going to train them and invest our time in them and they could become amazing and they could get headhunted and and leave the business but it was something that it was all we could do um but in terms of sort of recruitment we we actually adopted linkedin recruiter really early on um i think we were one of the maybe by year 2 or year 3 we were using the linkedin recruiter licenses um where we got to a stage where everyone in the business was using it and linkedin were using us as case studies um for other recruitment businesses as as to why they should use uh, that technology um, i remember sitting in robert walters in 2011 2012 in 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 a cheap suit that uh that i didn't want to be in um n- not feeling that i had the same mentality of you know wanting to be corporate as as maybe the management team had Mm-hmm. and i remember seeing your brand and your offices and it blew me away you were you were one of the first agencies to really adopt that like that look and feel of a co-working space as well weren't you 
Yeah, definitely. So I think in our first four years, we moved offices five times. Um, so it was, and we went to, obviously we started off in my parents' house at the beginning. Um, just, <laughs> How did your parents find that? Well, <laughs> well, they eventually, they got sick of us after about six months. Cause, uh, God, they're that, good, that aren't a, they? Yeah, they did well, to be honest, but they would go to work. So um, boys would come down in the morning, I'd, I'd wake up. Uh, come downstairs they'd, they'd force me to pick them up from the train station just so it felt like I was doing something um, but yeah we, we moved there and then um, that was sort of mid 2008 when we set up the business uh, around May time and then September the credit crunch hit um, but we were really lucky our, our, our costs were low our cost base was low and we just had really good relationships at the time so we were able to carry on growing so our first office was in Oxford Circus in Great Portland Street um, we were subletting off a small marketing agency and we were in their basement uh, for a little while. And I remember that was the first time we got exposure to like a table tennis table. He just happened to have a table tennis table in the basement downstairs. So when we would have some downtime, we'd just start playing and we were good at that as well. Um, but it was just one of the first things that we didn't even plan to have something like that. It just happened to be there. Um, yeah. And then he actually went under after about three months. Um, so we had to move pretty quickly. So we ended up getting office space in Bond Street. Um, and again, it was another basement office. I think we were paying something like a £1,000 a month. Um, and we were really lucky that we were right next door to the Marylebone Hotel. So we used to do all our meetings there uh, to give off the impression that we were this really slick organization. But we were just a couple of guys just dressed really scruffily just trying to make whatever money we could um and then our, our real first big move happened um in year two we moved to Tudy street in london bridge uh, we got really central uh, right by london dungeons and we got an office space that could hold 18 people um and we managed to squeeze 27 people in there um and it was it was a great period it was a time where um we were still just got to a stage where you have a good week and you can still take everyone out and you can just about find a, a Nando's or, or a restaurant that can handle that many people coming in at once at short notice. It must have been a great time. Yeah, it really was. And I mean, even then the offices were, I mean, we've always had like a staple PlayStation there or, or in the office just for that downtime. But um, we decided that we had to go big. Um, and at that point, we actually got introduced to a non-exec director um, and he really helped shape our business and our direction and give us who, who was that? an end goal. So the non is a guy called John O'Sullivan. Um, oh, good. This is the second time he's been quoted, actually. <laughs> and um, yeah, that was an amazing uh, period for us. I mean, he ran a... Uh, a recruitment a networking uh, monthly networking thing for recruitment owners uh, like a, a once a month forum and he was a non-exec on a couple of businesses and I remember um, when we approached him the fact that he even said yes was huge to us because it showed I mean he gets to see so many businesses every day uh, but he saw something in us um, so he came on board um, he brought a, a financial director a non-exec also on board um, and Together, those two with us, we would have monthly board meetings and it really helped uh, shape the, the business and the strategy and the direction that we wanted to go in. Uh, and what type of stuff did, uh, did, did, did the implement that helped you? Was it financial models or, or can, can you kind of walk through what that is? Yeah, so there was a couple of factors, right? So obviously, um, we were completely self-funded for up until that stage so four years um, everything we made we put back into the business we were paying all our contractors uh, through our own payroll and um, we had I think uh, at that point maybe 100 150 contractors working for us every week wow um, you had that on your own payroll yeah and um, I remember when John spoke to us and he was like guys what are you doing like have you not heard <laughs> of factoring um, <laughs> yeah. where they can give you the money up front and then you, he, he couldn't believe that we'd been going for so many years. And to us, this is all we knew, right? And um, I remember there was a few times... You forget that, how, you, how young you were as well, hey? Yeah, exactly. Like, I remember like two days of the week, I was doing accounts and I was having to 
out of my five days and I was doing the payroll and I was making sure um, get the list of the contractors, all their bank details, making sure their time sheets and uh, <laughs> invoices matched up and then saying who needs to be paid every um, week. And our cash flow was so tight back then at some stages, we used to literally have to go to our bank and withdraw 20, 30, 40,000 pounds in one go um, and walk to the different banks and pay our contractors one by one. Um, <laughs> and it got to the stage where all the banks knew us in central London. Oh, no. so we would just go around and we were just like if anyone knew that there were three guys walking around central london with this much money on them it would be really dangerous so. yeah and now of course w- when you look at that you're like that's the time i should have been hiring people or building my business and using the money wisely w- was that the next stage of of of, of how they were so, so, so walk us through that that bit yeah so completely so what um john and simon came in and, and did they were like okay well what do you guys want to do do you, want to, do you want this to be a lifestyle business? Do you want to sell it? Do you want to be acquired? Do you want to scale it and go international? And we were sort of just like, well, we, we always set up the business with the intention that we wanted to sell it um, and that we wanted to get a value attached to something that we'd created from scratch. So um, one of the biggest things with John was he's a big expert in the M&A field and mergers and from him we were able to get okay well what does a good recruitment business look like um what percentage should be a contractor book what percentage should be your perm billings um what should be your ebit at the bottom line um and if you hit this sort of ebit level let's say a million pounds um what is the multiple that you could get for something like that would it be six times seven times how can we make it ten times what do we need to add to our business to make it more and more attractive. You'd be lucky to get 10 times in today's market. Yeah, I know, exactly. And um, The world has changed. It really has. And um, we also then, Simon, our FD, he came in, Simon Michaels, and uh, basically, obviously, we had uh, an accounts person who was doing all our books, but he just came in and said, okay, let's get the books really clean, let's make it really slick, make sure everything is above board, there's... um, no, there's nothing that can be questioned and you're whiter than white in, in how everything looks and we, he just got us in such so, good order. So if, essentially, they come in with the viewpoint of in 10 years or in 8 years time when you exit, this is the type of questions that the M&A people are going to need to answer yeah. before we're able to get the right valuation and then they work backwards on making sure everything's clean, uh, your money's been used in the right way and you grow to a certain headcount and you have your certain EBITDA ready. Exactly. So, yeah, and say if, say if we wanted to get to a million EBIT um, and you say the average consultant bills 100K, let's say. So, okay, you need, you need 100 people. Um, so what are we going to, how do we get there if we're currently 30 people um, and we've, we want to do it in how many years? Three or four years. So then you work out a backward plan, okay, well, by 2013, 2014, we need to be 60 people strong. Um, and if we're going to grow that many people, which markets are they going to be in? Is there a market for those guys? Um, so as soon as we knew that, we knew, okay, next year we need to grow by X amount. The year after we need to grow, we had clear objectives of what we needed to do. And in the meantime, we just had to make sure everyone that we brought on, build. Um, so when we moved to Old Street, we acquired an office space which could hold 60 people. 62 mm. people it was a 4,000 square foot office um i got interior designers in and i just helped design um the whole office space and we had um a breakout area table tennis area um we had a t- uh, massive kitchen with the seating for everyone to sit down and do our company meetings and um our meeting rooms we got an illustrator in and he basically drew out the digital guru story across the meeting rooms um, so when we'd bring clients or candidates down, there'd be a really great focus. That's point. brilliant. And um, he did such a good job. We just got him back in and he did the rest of the office and he drew some of our consultants dotted around the office. And it just really helped give that personality and character to the business. Um, and that led on to all our branding and marketing across like LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and um, all of that stuff. And it just helped reinforce the message that we were doing. Um, your uh, your relationship with the other co-founders are you the one who's more operations led given your financial background and and the way that you're talking to me it sounds like 
you know, you get a kick out of knowing the numbers and work, making them work and all of that. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's really important if, if there's a couple of co-founders or founders that you all identify your core strengths um, very early on and you assign roles and responsibilities so that people don't overlap. Um, and Farouk was one who was very much more sales driven. And I would say he was more the the guy pushing the team and encouraging the sales. And I was handling a lot more of the ops and strategy and um the direct helping to build the direction and making sure that we had a solid foundation that we could springboard off. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know. We're we're the same in the way that we operate. Like, uh, I would have no interest in looking at a spreadsheet or a bank account or 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 a, an operational plan. But I like creating it. Yeah, and I like the marketing side. Um, but Charlotte, Charlotte, Charlotte jumps into the other bits. <laughs> um, and I'm and I'm lucky that our our skills kind of counterbalance each other. I'm sure I'm sure you're grateful for it as well. Yeah, completely, and it works really well. And I think um, the whole team also buy into that. Um, and there's clear lines, and everyone knows how it works. And it's it's almost like a, a mum dad relationship, isn't it? And it's, mm. it's something that you work and, and you get to do. And so now everything's in order. You you, you 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 kind of feel like you've got a roadmap in order to go. The, you've you've survived the recession, and I'm guessing, giving your unique proposition at the time. I know there's lots more competition in the marketplace for you now, but at the time, your unique proposition. Were you able to pick up lots of good recruiters from old school recruitment firms, who, who firstly wanted to get into a, a developing industry, and were just sick and tired of wearing a suit and tie? Yeah, definitely. So we went on when we moved to our office in old street um it almost coincided it was at the four-year mark and we got we won agency of the year recruitment agency of the year at the mara awards um it was one of the it was the first or second year i think they'd done it and um, we weren't expecting it and um because we were still relatively small compared to a lot of our competitors but um when we won that it really helped put our brand on the map industry-wise um, so lots of other recruiters were there. There's what year was this, sorry? This was 2012. Okay, excellent. 2012, yeah. Seems like ages away now. Um, and what it did was lots of senior consultants actually started to approach us. Um, and they had proven track record um, in the industry. Um, but they were commanding big salaries. And we'd always just hired grads initially. So it was a real big... Uh, decision for us to you know what are we gonna um, invest and pay out this extra premium for these guys um, and hope that they can uh, hit the ground running and and transfer those relationships over and and that work ethic and it was a a bit of a mixed bag to be honest because I think the actual digital gurus culture that we created was actually very relaxed compared to your traditional IT recruitment companies Um, we wanted a business where everyone was relatively self-motivated and they had their own personal drivers. Um, and when it doesn't the, everybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, we felt we had that with a lot of the grads that we brought on and they'd been with us for two or three years now. They were all billing really well and they're doing really well. And um, the more senior guys came with more experience uh, on higher basics, but they'd come into our environment and they weren't used to how relaxed it was. Um, and they would end up coasting a little bit too much, um, thinking they were still billing the same sort of money that they'd done previously, but they actually weren't doing anything. Um, or, so we had a lot of failure in that model. Um, we had some really good success stories, though, but within another sort of 18 months, we grew the business from 30 people to 60. So we went through a really rapid um, expansion. And, and that's where you, you come across a lot of casualties, isn't it? Because yeah. you're still figuring yourself out. You had your identity and then you're like, but the identity probably doesn't go with the roadmap that we set out with the non-exec team. So how do we get from this point to that point without taking an external hires? Was there any lessons learned that you were able to implement after t- 
taking in people from the outside in terms of identifying like are these like does this person need handholded like say if it's somebody from i don't know uh, robert half or somewhere that the kpis are quite high um like is if you're not in there to babysit them how can you be sure they're going to do it were you able to kind of put a formula in place to identify who's the right type of character that isn't coming from your own organic uh, development program yeah it became um really apparent i think um admittedly for a business of our size or the size that it sort of got to quite quickly we actually weren't very good at training guys in in that second period because we were so focused on growth um and the time and dedication we put on our early guys we just didn't have the the bandwidth to recreate that and we found that the the model of us when we were hiring new people it actually worked if they had come from a very strict almost corporate kpi numbers driven environment so that it was ingrained into them into the behaviors and how they had to work and mm. for us then it just came down to identifying the right culture and whether they would fit um and that was probably still really tricky to identify right yeah. um and it's I'm some, sure it still is. Yeah. And like I've probably interviewed 500 recruiters, maybe more. Um, and we've had more than 200 work for us, I'd say, um, over the years who've come and gone. And it's, it's, it's still something that you'd still get wrong, I think, to this day. But um, if they were if they had those core drivers and that's the key is how do you identify those and how do you sort the guys that are talking nonsense from the ones who are actually serious? And I think you just have to, a lot of the times we just went with our gut and almost always, if the two of us agreed on someone, um, it was always a hundred percent. Yes. Um, A few still slip through. um, But I think that is just recruitment in general. And there isn't really a perfect model out there, but we've definitely got much better now. Um, And our retention was high as well at that same time. So that was a real course to bring on these guys, but also keep them and keep them happy. So a lot of our senior leadership team now have been with us for six, seven, eight, nine years. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to, so, so your senior leadership team, you've gone from kind of like a bohemian, cool, relaxed digital agency to a scalable recruitment agency. Did did that require a lot of training for the management team to adapt to maybe having to be a bit more quantitative in the way that they managed outcomes in the way that they in the way that you build and develop teams yeah we had to um i think as we got big or, or re- once we got to sort of 50 60 people um there was only so much time myself and fruk had to give people one to one time and individual time to actually see what they were up to so we really had to fall back onto numbers um and you can see why corporates get to that stage as well Mm. um just from a a reporting perspective and trying to spot trends um so we we started to to measure kpis we had a couple of core ones which were mainly um first cvs out and first interviews yeah Um, that's all i really measure as well yeah and and i think that's the that's the core learning that we took away they were the benchmarks that if those numbers are high um, the rest should follow um, and if it doesn't then that's where you can identify where it's falling down in the, the training or the education piece with that particular consultant um, Have so, you, Do you use like Cube19 or anything like that? I remember they got in touch with us early on because we were always one of the first to use new technology and stuff I remember they came to our office they were literally in Old Street at the same time um, but at the time it just felt a little bit too expensive um, yeah. for us. And it just, we were afraid that it could potentially have gone too corporate. Um, I think from what I've heard from other people, people have liked it. And I've, I've met recruiters who've worked in businesses who work for us now and said, oh yeah, we used to use it. But I, we just, at that time, um, we were going through obviously scaling, but also we had to be really careful with where we spent our money and it had to be on a crucial thing. I think at one point we were spending something like two hundred thousand pounds just on linkedin a year um on like linkedin recruiter and job ads and stuff like that so it was 
substantial money and we had to make sure we were spending things in the right areas that were going to generate revenue on the bottom line. Um, does your financial controller analyze what your spend is to, uh, in, in terms of uh, the return on investment, say for LinkedIn or for Indeed or for whatever you're doing? Or is that something you jump into yourself being a numbers guy? Yeah, so we, we used to monitor where um, our placements were coming from. Um, and we quickly switched off using almost all job boards, um, <laughs> really. And the digital market in particular became one which was, because of such a scarcity of talent, it almost became a headhunting model. Um, and the more tools that I keep banging on about, but li- the, the tools that LinkedIn, LinkedIn brought just really helped. Um, and they were starting to cut back on all the free stuff that they used to do. So it almost became a necessity. Uh, a necessary evil um and at what what point did uh did you get your big boy pants on and say now it's time to take over the world and i'm going to go international what what year was that what did that look like what did your how did that fit in with what your advisors had told you walk us through those early stages yeah so i guess we needed to hit um a particular headcount so we wanted to get up to about 70 80 consultants because we thought if we hit that headcount we'll hit the bottom line ebit that we need so we mapped out the sectors in the in london and the uk that we felt that we could do um, and how big we could grow those particular teams and it felt that we could only really get london to 60 set to about 60 people um mm. without it starting to really cut in and, and become a internal competition and um, we did look at other markets so we, we started off a, a french desk we just found a french consultant who worked in our office um but recruited into paris and that happened for a really short period um we set up one of the first cyber security desks one of the first data and analytics desks um and this was back in 2013 2014 um so we were always able to see which were some of the future technologies that were coming out. Mm. Um, but then it became apparent that, you know what, okay, we need to go international. So um, two of the girls in our team who were both team leaders, Gillian and Sharon, um, they'd both been to Australia before. And uh, they approached us and said, hey, look, we'd be interested in um, moving out there and, and setting up a, a, a DG office, a DG brand. Hey, man, the... Australia, the thing about Australia, it's not cheap to set up there, right? Mm. No, it like, really isn't. It's one of the most expensive places if, to incorporate, to get staff, to get, to get, like, it's crazy. And, you know, the, the percentage rates charged there, they're not, they're not what they are in other marketplaces. I, I suppose the counter argument there is that the salaries are so high mm-hmm. and the business is consistent. Was that, was that the thought process? Yeah, completely. So, I mean, for us, we've historically, we've always backed our guys. So if someone in our team was doing well and they came to us with an idea or a plan and they wanted to do it and we backed them and rated them, we typically would go and invest and and do something with whether it's I want to tackle this market in London or I want to do this or I want to go international. So when they came to us and they were two senior billers and they had that and they put a business plan together and we just so happened to the same time and because we'd been so frugal with our money we managed to engage with a, a factoring business which released a large chunk of money for us because we had such a, a massive contract book and we were making mm. uh, some decent money there so that helped release some of the funds for australia but to make things up we decided to open up dubai simultaneously um and we just happened to be introduced to a guy through a uh, I think it was a rec to rec at the time. Um, we weren't really looking at Dubai seriously. It was more of a place that, you know what, somewhere we like to go on holiday. Um, it could, could be a good little side thing and we'll see how it goes. We didn't really know too much about the, the market even, but we were just like, if we could add five heads there and five heads in Sydney, it hits the numbers that we need to. Um, and, and that was the initial mm. reasoning behind going out to those markets. You, you grew relatively slowly in, in Sydney, it's fair to say, didn't you? Yeah, it has. I mean, they are still um, five people, I think. It's so hard to get, get talent, eh? It's incredibly hard. I think everyone 
since they've changed the visa regulations, it's much yeah. harder for people to, to live there. Um, and you can get these two-year visas, but then after that, there's no guarantee you can stay. Well, um, you can extend them for another two years. You yeah. Know. And uh. I guess not many people tend to move around anymore because they, want to, they need to stay in that same job for a while. Yeah, it's... Do you know, actually, I, I would say the, the regulations has actually done my business quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, before, I think there was a lot of subpar recruiters going to Australia. And, and now it's only the best of the best that get through. And they know that they only have four years to go over there and make a load of money. And, and then that's it. We've, uh, we've, been, we've been steady enough from it. But I thought, I actually thought nobody would, would hire with the, with the regulation changes. Like to, to have to pay somebody 100,000 Australian dollars just, yep. to, just to start them off. That's a, that's a serious amount of outlay, isn't it? It really is. And that's what it became. It became um, a really big challenge for the girls to hire talent there and grow. And um, they've been really lucky. The team that they have is exceptional. Um, they were one of the best performing teams for the last two years now. Um, and they've done really well. And that, now they're going through a bit of a, a growth spurt. Um, okay, the Dubai office... Um, yeah, talk to me about Dubai. Why am I making no money in Dubai? <laughs> so Dubai is a tricky one. So I've been here now for two years. Um, the reason I came out here is actually, so Digital Gurus, we were approached um, three years ago by the Rethink Group. Um, and it was an introduction that was made via John O'Sullivan. Um, and they came and they basically acquired us. Um, as a recruitment business, they're a large IT recruitment firm with clients such as B Sky B, Marks and Spencers, Boots and Ladbrokes, um, and they were doing these RPOs, um, sort of smaller Alexander man size business and deals. Um, and they really wanted uh, a digital business to complement the IT offering that they had. So um, that was a huge moment for us, really significant. Yeah. Can, can we can we jump into some of that? Yeah. So um, obviously, our ultimate goal was to to be acquired, right? Uh, I'm, so, I'm guessing you wanted to get to a hundred headcount, right? Yeah. I mean, we did, and what happened was we we never actually got to a hundred in the end. What we ended up doing was we had to get the business really streamlined uh, and made make it profitable. And we realised with the heads that we had, um, we could actually hit the numbers that we needed to. Um, we just needed to have optimum productivity um, and we couldn't have, um, we had to, I think that was the only period in running the business where we had to be a little bit ruthless. Um, I can imagine, I we, can imagine there's a lot of casualties. Yeah, when, yeah. When and, you're going, okay, I need you all to do more, but do it better. Yeah, and and it's literally like that. And um, the I guess what's always been good for us is we've always been pretty open with our guys they've always especially the core senior members that are sort of with us um they've always been aware of sort of the plans and what we were trying to achieve and um, everyone bought into that which really helped um so yeah i mean rethink they came um up to us they approached us um i think the deal overall it took maybe about 12 months to conclude so at Uh, that point we almost stood still for 12 months um, as a business, and is John acting as uh, as a bit of a go-between? Yeah. In in this, yeah, yeah. So he was also a non-exec for Rethink. Yeah. Um, right. So it was um, a really good connect for us to have an ally and advocate, and um, we. But he there. groomed that for a long time, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I th- I wouldn't be surprised if he had it in his mind for years. Um, wow. And, and and wanted to do something like that. It's funny, you know, when like there really is levels, isn't there? Yeah, and that's it, that, it, that that's amazing. Really, really is. And um, they were at the time they were still listed on the stock market, and they still had to, they were looking to delist off the stock market. They had to do that before they acquired us. They acquired another business six months before that, so they were going on a bit of an acquisition spree. Um, so it was all everything was a go at once. So we were trying to. Um, handle this negotiation, run the business, get it streamlined, 
we had some casualties. We had to make sure everyone was still driving in the same position, but we weren't able to really grow. Um, so I think that year while we were doing the sale, we probably, it was the most stagnant we'd been, but bottom line wise, we did really well. What year was that? This was 2015. Oh, and you're still in the business, eh? 2015, 2016, yeah. You haven't gone off into the sunset? No, no, we haven't actually. I mean, part of um, the acquisition and the sale was um, we actually really believed in the the larger group and the entity and what they were trying to um, achieve and build. Um, So we now have equity in the the larger group. Uh, We're on the board and um, have a, a real direct say in how the the wider group operates now. Um, Does it change your day-to-day? Um, I guess for me, on a personal level, I think once the acquisition happened, um, I still felt like I wanted to have that element of control um, and freedom, and the opportunity in Dubai came up, and it just seemed to make sense. Um, at the time, uh, the office was going through a transition. We had someone in charge, but the team weren't engaged. And we had people leave for the first time and they were joining competitors and that hadn't really ever happened. Um, so we had to make a real big call there. We either shut down the Dubai office or we do what we did in Sydney and get someone who actually knows the business and understands it to go out there and do it. And timing wise, I spoke to my wife. I've got three kids as well. Um, which is like, you know what? we don't do this now we may never go abroad um so let's do it so and and that's what brought me out to dubai um, it's two years now two years and a month so fantastic what a great story before i let you go i want to pick your brain on dubai yeah so so you've you've been out there for a while what what are some of the things that surprised you about life there Mm. so it's extremely relationship driven out here in the region. So when I came out here, uh, to put it into perspective, I, I was on a business development crazy madness and I probably met 60 different clients in the first three months. Um, probably more than I'd ha- done in about three years in London. Um, and over here, everyone's willing to pick up the phone to you, they'll have a conversation and they'll meet you for a coffee. Um, but if they don't believe you or if they don't know that you have a track record in the region or you don't know someone they know, it's very hard to get that credibility early on. Um, and that's probably been one of the biggest learnings for me. Um, the longer here, the better um, the business has been year on year by far. And any of the guys, that, so when I moved out to Dubai, um, two of my guys from London, they moved out and followed me. Um, and then we ended up, I hired a couple of people from competitors in the region. Um, and then some which were by, but hadn't worked uh, in recruitment. So there was a real mix there. And it was really apparent the guys that came from the UK um, really struggled in the first six to nine months to get up to speed. Um, the culture was a big shift the pace of recruitment so it takes a lot longer to get stuff done um it was also really and they found it incredibly frustrating coming from london where you could turn around three stages in a week to three stages in two or three months and it was for the same value fee um from a recruitment perspective does that mean that you you have to have more uh, like you have to have more more processes Go on at the same time? Yeah, so it's, it's a mixture of two. So um, what you really learn the longer you're out here is how to really qualify your clients and their jobs uh, better. Um, and you're able to read between the lines in, in what they say and how they deliver things. Um, if something's urgent to one client, it could mean that they're looking to hire in the next three months, whereas someone else urgent could be a week. Um, and then we started leaning towards more Western, initially like Western-based businesses that had set up offices in the region because we felt they'd understand um, the wider market and, and how things work in general in recruitment. 
But then now we also work with some of the larger family groups and local entities here. Um, but it's a really big and um, slow process. Even everything here is still done by paper. So you have to go and physically get terms signed, um, couriered, stamped. Um, people still pay by checks out here. Wow. Um, everything's done face to face. Um, you can't even start working with the client until you have the signed business terms like everything all the paperwork is done and that could take another two or three weeks before you even get going on the recruitment so um, there can be lots of roadblocks in the way but once you get past those it can be really lucrative so um, the guys here patience is the key then it, it really is and not to get Well, a massive thank you to Safe for coming on the podcast and for going into some great detail on his journey. I loved hearing how they went from being a very flexible, funky startup to a more structured business. And he supercharged that on his way to the exit. And then I think it's fair to say he's toned that back a little bit since from what from what I was reading in between the lines. So it's interesting how a founder's vision can slightly change on the path. And he sounds like somebody who's very analytical um, and used numbers to get to predict what was going to happen. And seeking out John O'Sullivan and getting him to structure that deal and to structure them to lead them to a point where he connects the two companies together. I mean, that's pretty that's pretty amazing. This guy John O'Sullivan this guy John O'Sullivan sounds like a bit of a Don. I'd love to get him on the podcast and pick his brain. Um to have that type of clout must be must be pretty special. So um yeah, massive thanks to Safe. Really enjoyed learning a bit more about his journey. And the next time we catch up, we'll talk a little bit more about Dubai. And hopefully I'll get over there as well. So um, we'll be back tomorrow with another fantastic guest. And if you're enjoying the podcast, just drop me a little note on LinkedIn. Be great to know who's listening. Uh, it seems we're getting like almost it feels like close to a thousand a day people listening now which which is great so um i'd love to know who you are what you're what you're getting from this what i'm missing in terms of the questions i'm asking the if, if there's a knowledge gap that you have that i can help you with just just let me know whatever it is because i probably don't know what i don't know as well so um Anything that you think is relevant for making this better, please do reach out to me. And happy hunting.